you would please uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And I'd like to take an opportunity today to take a closer look at verse 10 that we studied somewhat last week, and I hope to answer more questions than I create. Last week we discussed the gospel message, the opposition to that message that all Christians are going to encounter uh, to one level or another. Jesus had faced hostility, and he told us, if he faces hostility, how much more so should we expect it as well? The Pharisees, they had all denied Jesus, verse 9, not all, but as a group they had denied Jesus. They had also spoken against him, you see that in verse 10. Uh, These sins, Jesus says, are clearly forgivable, denying and speaking against Christ in ignorance and in unbelief, uh, even blaspheming Jesus, uh, they're sins that God will graciously forgive. You need proof of that? Just take a look around. Many of us here uh, in our past ha- have said things about the Lord, perhaps blasphemed even His name, perhaps in unbelief, done all kinds of things. Yet that sin is forgivable. The sin of unbelief is forgivable, praise God. But by God's grace, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who convicts of sin and regenerates the heart, rejection of Christ is forgivable. Jesus states in Matthew 12, verse 31, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. And for one, I'm eternally grateful that Christ forgives the sin of unbelief. But there is one sin. There is one sin and only one sin That God deems unforgivable. For Christ continues by saying, But the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not forgivable. It's the unpardonable sin. Committing this sin, it's indicative of one who will never come to faith, will never be forgiven, and is sentenced to eternal damnation. From our scripture reading earlier in Mark chapter 3, verse 28, Jesus declares, Truly I say to you. It's a very solemn declaration in scripture. Only Jesus uses that particular expression. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, we would think that that statement alone should be enough. Uh, The sin committed by the Pharisees in context, it's clearly being eyewitnesses, becoming eyewitnesses to the miracles performed by Christ, and then ascribing that power, the power of those miracles, those divine miracles, to Beelzebul, to Satan. Ascribing that power of the Holy Spirit to Satan. The Pharisees were saying in Mark 3, verse 22, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. In verse 30, he has an unclean spirit. So there's little question of what the unpardonable sin is, what it's comprised of. It's asserting that that influence over Jesus, over his ministry, wasn't the Holy Spirit of God, but that that 
power that he showed was and displayed was of Satan. So the identification of the unpardonable sin should not be that difficult, although it is for some people. We had uh, several years ago, many years ago actually, um, one who insisted that the unpardonable sin was the same as the sin unto death. You find that in 1 John chapter 5. And that that was to be recognized as any sin under the Old Testament law, any sin under the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, where God demanded the penalty of death. That's how it was suggested to us. So under this man's theology, if a Christian were to commit any of those sins, then you've committed an unpardonable sin, a sin unto death. You've lost your salvation. There remains no hope for you ever being saved. Well, under the Mosaic law, that that becomes tough. Because disrespecting parents in particular ways is punishable by death under the law. Those who blasphemed were put to death. What other ones are there that can't be forgiven? There's a bunch of them. Adultery is punishable by death. But remember, even back then, under the law, punishable by death at that time, it didn't ensure damnation or condemnation, but instead called for capital punishment. It called for the punishment of death, the death penalty. I don't comprehend how anyone can conclude after, after uh, Jesus had assured us that, that these would be sins unto death and that you'd lose your salvation when Jesus says all sins shall be forgiven the sons of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. So, we told him we'd respectfully disagree in certain words, and I understand he was quickly promoted to teaching a ministry at another church around town, uh, morning Bible classes, which demonstrates how important it is to flush out these things like the unpardonable sin. We have to understand and explain these things. And the interpretation, it's not that difficult. The unpardonable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's clear enough that most churches don't include it into their doctrinal statements. It's clear enough that it didn't become a big hinge, hinge point or, or, or a big item of contention for the early church. You don't see a definition of the unpardonable sin in the Apostles' Creed or in the Nicene Creed, any of the creeds. They were worried about stuff like the divinity of Christ, right? So they didn't even address blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in those creeds. Nevertheless, it's the application of the unpardonable sin that becomes very precarious. If taught incorrectly, people can be led astray. They can question their salvation if they're taught wrongly. They can attack one another's salvation. It's possible to be told, for instance, someone here might have at one point. This isn't that unusual. It is possible to be told, for instance, when questioning Well, one of these fake healers on TV. Sometimes they call them faith healers. Uh, Most of the time, uh, we're seeing them as fake healers. You could be told that questioning that healing, questioning their healing, is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. No, it's not, because that person is not Jesus, and what they're doing is not a miracle. What we see on television is not miraculous, folks. Instead, God has given us the spirit of truth to discern false teachers. That's what he's given us the spirit to do. False teachers, false tongues, false healings, all kinds of falsities out there. That's why God has given us the spirit. 
So we can see it's important to engage this carefully. Uh, it's important to distinguish also the unpardonable sin from the sin unto death. They're not the same, and as we'll learn, not even related. Uh, so I'm going to go and, and do the best to unpack the unpardonable sin just by answering a few questions. A few questions. Number one, can we, that, that means believing Christians amongst us, can we commit the unpardonable sin today? Many people fear this. Many Christians fear this, that they might have committed the unpardonable sin. Let me begin by declaring the obvious. Born-again Christians, those who are truly born of the Holy Spirit, cannot commit the unpardonable sin. We've already been pardoned, folks, of all of our sins. Once truly saved, we are always saved because our heart is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It is sealed by the Holy Spirit, the promise unto the day of redemption. You'll find that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, Ephesians 4, verse 30. This is known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Scripture ensures that those who are born again by the Holy Spirit of God are sealed and permanently preserved by that Holy Spirit. He is in earnest, a deposit given us, ensuring our salvation, ensuring our inheritance. We can't lose salvation. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. To propose a Christian can lose their salvation is a grave error, folks. A grave error. That view, consistent with what is often called Arminianism, it completely misunderstands the regenerated nature of the heart. That we've been changed made into a new creation alive to God. Though we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive. It denies the sovereignty of God. It denies the election of God. It doesn't offer eternal life. It only offers temporary conditional life based upon what you do, hinging upon your compliance. Folks, Jesus never offers temporary conditional life he says that his sheep will never perish no one can snatch them out of his hand you know arminians that view solves this by saying well no one can snatch you out of jesus hands but you know you can jump out of his hand well that makes salvation dependent upon the will of man rather than the sovereign will of god and it turns Jesus, who promises his sheep will never perish, into a liar. The Apostle Paul concludes in Romans 8, verses 33, beginning in 8.30, in, in, in that passage there, that nothing, no created thing, nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. No created thing. Is Satan a created thing? Yes, he is a created being. Can he separate us from the love of God? No. Are you a created thing, a created being? Yes, you are a created being. So then neither can you separate yourself from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You can't jump out of His hand. That's a horrible misrepresentation of Scripture. Arminianism is errant doctrine that makes salvation a work of man 
and, and deceives people into trusting in self rather than trusting the promises of God. But we know, Romans 8.1, for there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Unequivocally, Christians, if you're a Christian here today, unequivocally, you can't commit any, par, uh, any type of unpardonable sin. We simply will not blaspheme the Holy Spirit by whom we've been saved and by whom we've been sealed unto the day of redemption. doesn't mean you tempt and go ahead and try to commit it. A Christian wouldn't do that. A Christian wouldn't do that. But we cannot lose our salvation so we cannot commit an unpardonable sin. Which takes us to a second question. Can a non-believer today commit the unpardonable sin? You know, some uh, suggest that since Jesus is no longer walking the earth today, since his miracles, his miraculous works are no longer observable by the naked eye as they were by the Pharisees, that it's impossible to commit the unpardonable sin today. Uh, meaning that we can't recon, uh, reconstruct the conditions that the Pharisees were under. You follow me? That it's just impossible because Jesus isn't walking around doing miracles, so it's impossible to assign any miracles to the uh, the uh, to Satan, that's a fairly common view. It's a fair. A lot of people that we would respect lean that way, but I'd like you to put on your thinking caps. All right, put on your thinking caps for a moment. Can an unbeliever commit the unpardonable sin? And the answer is that depends. That depends. If you are an unbeliever here today who is of the elect of God. That means he wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life, chose you as his possession from the foundation of the world. That, by the way, will assure you in God's time at some point you will come to faith and nothing will thwart God's choice. All right? Our reference Romans chapter 9. His choice will stand. It doesn't man, uh, depend upon the man who wills or the man who strives, but on the will of God. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He hardens whom he will harden. Romans 9, very clear. God's choice will stand. John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, Jesus says, I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, Jesus says, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Do you follow me? Do you follow me here? You could today still be an unbeliever sitting in the pew. You might have just walked in today. This might be the first time that you're hearing about Christ. The gospel was very clear in the songs today that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. So this might be your first time visiting today. You might not have come to faith yet. But in God's timing, you will. It's not that you will choose God and that will alter the Lamb's book of life or that in some way you will thwart God's plan. Nobody seeks after God. Not even one, Romans 3, not even one. Can't go there. No one seeks after God. He chooses us. He elects us. He predestines us. Jesus told his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you. So a correct biblical view 
of God's sovereignty understands that nothing will thwart God's choice of calling his elect into his church. He chose us, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. James 1, verse 18. In the exercise of his will, God brought us forth. He gave birth to us. We looked at that phrase last week. By the word of truth, John 1, verse 13, we were born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're born of God. Uh, God's sovereign will determines which of the spiritually dead will rise. Yes, we have an experience of choosing Him. We do experience that. But it is not until after He has already chosen us. The mechanics of the Holy Spirit predate our choice in choosing Him. We only choose Him after the Holy Spirit has regenerated our hearts. So if you're chosen by God before the foundation of the world, your, your names are lit, written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're predestined by God to adoption as sons, even if you're currently in still the unconverted state, I mean, you haven't trusted in Him yet, it's utterly impossible for you to commit the unpardonable sin. Because eventually, you will come to faith because God's will has deemed it so. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Now, now that doesn't mean a Christian becomes flippant about this. We surely don't. Quite the opposite. But the scenario won't occur. The scenario of someone's, uh, of God's elect blaspheming into the Holy Spirit won't occur because we won't thwart His plan. We won't thwart His purposes. Therefore, if, you've, if you're concerned that you may have committed the unpardonable sin, that's not a bad sign, folks. That's actually a good one. It suggests that the Holy Spirit is searching your heart convicting you of how unclean you are and revealing to you that you need God's mercy. You're, you are not indicative of a person who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit at that point. So if you've been able to follow through this progression of thought, the question of whether an unbeliever can still today commit the unpardonable sin by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it becomes moot. If he or she does, he or she was never chosen from the beginning. So it's my impression what Jesus was ultimately suggesting in Luke 12, verse 10, is that any person who claims the influence between, behind Jesus is Satan, any person who would make that claim, as the Pharisees did, it just verifies to the rest of us that they were never elect. They were never chosen. They are not of God. Their father, Scripture says, is the devil. They're not chosen. They never were chosen. They never will be forgiven. So, so blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it's indicative of a damned person. So as Jesus tells this crowd, that we studied last week, this crowd that he's speaking to, stay far from that person. 
Stay away from them. Don't make company with them. Don't be influenced by their leaven. They're bad influence. And through your relationship with them, through your, your, your company with them, prove that you yourself aren't elect either. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is truly a sin that we should fear and not taunt God with. We don't, we don't want to spend uh, time with those people. We don't want to have relationships with those people. It just proves who you are. Proves who you are. But can an unbeliever still commit the sin today? I haven't answered that question yet. As I said, some believe, since this was attributing Christ's miracles on earth to Satan, that it can't be reproduced today. The problem that they run into is Matthew 12, verse 32. There Jesus says, But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So there seems to be a perpetual charge of Jesus demanding the listener, the reader of the gospel. That includes us. There's a charge to decide who are you going to side with? Who are you going to side with? The Pharisees who are claiming that the power that Jesus exhibits is of Satan? Or are you going to side with Jesus? That's, that's, that's the crux of the question here. There are only two options, by the way. This ought to trouble you. There are only two options. In fact, Matthew 12, verse 30 says, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. For whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. The age to come is the church age. That's what we're in, folks. This is something we need to be concerned about in this age. In all of these parallel passages, the comparative passages, you know, Mark, uh, Matthew 12, Luke 12, Mark chapter 3, Jesus is challenging the reader to determine who are you going to side with. Are you going to side with the blasphemers? Are you going to succumb to the leaven of the Pharisees? Those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit and and accept their assessment that Jesus is of Satan, or will the scriptural evidence lead you to conclude from all the miracles, the wonders that Jesus performed, that this has to be the Son of God? Only two answers. You're either with him or you're against him. Do you accept the Spirit's written testimony to Christ? Or do you reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit to Christ? Jesus promises his disciples, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. That's John 15, verse 26. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit testifying to Christ remains today. Remains today. The question you need to answer is, when Jesus healed, whose work was he doing? Was it of God? 
And if it is, why do you still refuse to believe in him? If his work is not of God, then whom do you describe his ministry empowered by? Who do you conclude that it is from? And folks, choose carefully. Choose carefully. Because your unbelief today, it can be forgiven. Today is the day of salvation. Unbelief can be forgiven. But your rejection of the Holy Spirit's testimony to Christ, that surely will not. Can the Holy Spirit be blasphemed today? Can an unbeliever commit the unpardonable sin? Sure. Sure they can. And I think this is what's seen in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. There the author of Hebrews warns, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, it's significant, by the way, that the writer here does not describe this person as being saved. He describes them as being enlightened, all right? So, so apparently this is describing people who have been in the church. They have been exposed to the church for a while. They've witnessed the influence that the Holy Spirit has through people's changed lives. They've seen people born again. They've watched baptisms. They, they've seen what the Holy Spirit is doing. They, they've heard the goodness of God, uh, His Word preached, They're warned about the future return of Christ, that Christ will come again and He will judge the living and the dead. They've been partakers in all of this stuff. All this activity. But they ultimately determined they didn't like the taste of Christianity. Listen closely to Hebrews 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who had once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. And since it's impossible to renew these people to repentance, we know that they were never saved. An attitude of repentance, folks, doesn't ensure salvation. People repent out of convenience all the time. Makes their life easier. Oh, they're leading a business and they got caught in something awful. Oh, I, I, you know, I just, I just repent of that. I, I think I'm going to find Jesus. See that type of thing all the time. People repent out of convenience. It doesn't ensure that they were ever saved. These people who fell away didn't lose salvation. They just fell away. Is there a way to be certain of that? Yes. From the same epistle, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 warns, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. See, Hebrews concludes that that person who falls away isn't saved, describes them as having an evil, unbelieving heart. They're not a Christian. They're not losing their salvation. And as we learned earlier, Scripture is consistent and clear that Christians can't lose their salvation. And and we always use what is clear in Scripture to interpret passages that are less clear, such as Hebrews chapter 6. These people were enlightened. They tasted. They had been partakers of holy worship. They had been witnesses of what the Holy Spirit was doing around them. They participated 
but they were not sealed by him. They merely became part of the audience. It's just like this crowd Jesus is speaking to in Luke chapter 12. They too became witnesses of everything that was going on in Jesus' ministry. They saw what the Spirit was doing, but they weren't all believers. Hebrews 6 describes unbelievers who depart the church. They apostatized. You might have heard that word before. In 1 John 2 verse 19 it says that they went out from us, but they were not really of us, right? For if they had been of us, they would have remained, right? But they went out from us so that it would be made manifest that they weren't really of us. So they rejected the Holy Spirit's testimony that comes through believers in the church age. Does that compare to rejecting the Holy Spirit's testimony through Jesus? Well, you tell me. Jesus says, when the Helper comes, I will send uh, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me, and you will testify also. 1 John 5, verse 6. Again, this is written during the church age. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and, there are th- and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. The Holy Spirit is still testifying concerning His Son. He's doing it through believers today, through the church. We know the Holy Spirit is still testifying today. And when an unbeliever ultimately apostatizes, Scripture says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. It means apostasy is unpardonable. It's unforgivable. Jesus declared, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So Jesus says there is only one unforgivable sin. My conclusion, therefore, is Since Jesus assured there's only one unforgivable sin, that apostasy must continue to remain that one unforgivable sin. And the nature of that sin is consistent with that which the Pharisees committed because it's characteristic of rejecting the Holy Spirit's testimony. The testimony that comes through Christ's living body today, His church. Rejecting the body of Christ today is much like rejecting Him personally back in that day. It's indicative of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So, in a practical sense, that person concludes all of this, all of this worship through song, all of this love shared one for another, all of these changed lives... Those who've been born again and are living today for Christ, the person is concluding all of this is not from God. Who then is it from? You'll have to decide. Change gears now for one final question. Is there football today? What, what, what time is it, Chris? One? You might miss kickoff. Um, 
No. Now, this is important. It won't be long. Is the unpardonable sin the same as the sin unto death? That's found in 1 John 5.16. Is the unpardonable sin the same as the sin unto death? You will hear this uh, fairly regular. answer is no. No, 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 no. A sin unto death is committed by a Christian brother. does not signify spiritual death and damnation, but physical death. That passage says there, there are many sins uh, leading to death. Or, excuse me, many sins not leading to death. And we all know that's true. There are many sins that don't lead to death. And we should pray for our, our brethren uh, struggling against sin. But 1 John 5.15 says there is a sin leading to death. Or perhaps better understood, a sin that results in death. A sin unto death. A Christian can so high-handedly sin against God that he takes his or her physical life. We see this many times in Scripture. In Corinth, for example, you know, many sins were being committed against Christ's body in Corinth. Uh, there were divisions. There were factions. Some were not meeting for the Lord's Supper but to feast and get drunk. Others were being excluded from the feasting. Therefore, they went hungry. Uh, these were some of the unworthy manners by which Corinth was partaking of the bread and the cup. Divisiveness partaking of communion alone by themselves, excluding others, setting up exclusive groups, getting drunk. So Paul says when you come together to eat, this referencing the Lord's Supper, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. The Lord's Supper is something that we take together. The Lord's Supper is inclusive of Christians, not exclusive. And this is one of the reasons that we practice open communion at Port St. Lucie Bible Church. And then we urge you to examine yourself, whether or not you're in the faith, just as Scripture says. Closed communion, comparatively, when brothers and sisters in Christ are, are excluded, are excluded for one reason or another other than sin, it's, it's the very sin that Paul is addressing. And because of these sins, and, and just knowing Corinth, the problems they had, probably a host of other sins, Paul says they were partaking in an unworthy manner. So he writes, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number have died. Why did they die? Why were they sick? Well, 1 Corinthians 11 says that they were judged for their sins and disciplined by the Lord. Sin leading to sickness and even physical death. These were sins committed against the church which became sin leading unto death. So a sin unto death doesn't describe a particular sin. It's not the sin unto death. In fact, the definite article, the sin, isn't even there in the Greek. It's just sin unto death. It's not the sin. It's not a specific sin. The text in 1 John merely says sin unto death. So that would be any persistent unrepentant sin that leads to God taking a Christian's physical life. There was apparent, this was apparently fairly common in the early church. Ananias and Sapphira committed a sin unto death. While trying to make themselves look really good in front of the church, they had lied to the Holy Spirit. God took their life. 
And sins unto death primarily appear to be offenses against a local church. Especially division and partiality. As we wrap up, I, I think this is, I'm pretty confident this is what we observe in James. This is chapter 5. In verse 9 of James chapter 5, Christians were complaining against one another. Not a big deal, right? Wrong. James writes, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. We know they struggled with partiality and favoritism towards the rich. Verse 12 suggests they were swearing to one another and then breaking oaths. So James writes, just let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So God's judgment upon Christians is irrefutably the context of James chapter 5. So then in verse 14, James asks, Is anyone among you sick? Then you must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So the reason that the the person is calling the elders of the church isn't that the elders have a healing ministry. It's because the person fell ill due to sins against the church. It It was God's judgment And calling for the elders was an effort to be restored to the church. And and anointing suggests an identification with something. David was identified as king in Israel with an anointing. In Jewish Jewish culture, anointing was very common. James, the Lord's half-brother, is the writer here. He was very Jewish. This anointing with oil by the elders was merely symbolic of the wayward Christian wanting to be restored and re-identified with the church. That's why he or she calls for the elders. The oil held no mysterious or miraculous power. The sick person is merely indicating, I'm convicted that the sin that I have committed has caused this illness. I want to be re-identified with the church again. Send the elders to anoint me. Again, it is their responsibility to call for the elders. The passage indicates repentance. How do we know that James is talking about repentance? That's verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed why you're confessing the sins you've been convicted by the holy spirit that your illness is due to your sins against the church james is describing a sick person who's sick because they sinned against the church who by repentance is restored to the church and spared death it has nothing to do with the mystical power of oil oil is not a magical elixir of any kind folks it it just makes you slippery that's all it does It doesn't call for parents to anoint their families with oil every time they get a sniffle. That's not what it's talking about. This is a function of the elders concerning and representing the church. This is why we don't anoint every person who goes into the hospital. I'm sure that question comes up from time to time. Well, why aren't they being anointed with oil? Well, if the Spirit convicts you that your hospitalization is due uh, due to sin, call us. 
Call us. Elders, keep a few gallons of olive oil on hand. It gets a little messy. This is about restoration. James' final words speak to that restoration. My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You've helped a brother or sister. You've helped save them from physical death. Covered their sins. You see, it isn't speaking to an unpardonable sin of condemnation. It's talking about restoration. A sin unto death doesn't forfeit salvation. It causes you to to lose your physical life due to unrepentant sin. God takes your health, and and if needed, He'll do it to purify the church. Purify and protect the church from your sinful presence. Paul calls it God's discipline. One final quick question. Why don't we see more people sick and die today? If it was common in the early church. I believe it's because the revelation of the Bible now being complete. We have the whole Bible cover to cover. We've received instruction concerning discipline in the pastoral epistles. Church discipline has broadly been delegated to the church and its pastors. God has delegated that to the pastors and the church. So we now have the scriptures to tell us, to instruct us how to purge and purify the church of open, unrepentant immorality. Remove the immoral brother. Don't even eat with them. It isn't usually a problem because most of the time when people's sin is exposed, the text messages come around, Usually they run. Usually they they cut and run. So a sin unto death, it's committed by believers, and it leads to physical death. The unpardonable sin can only be committed by unbelievers, and it leads to eternal condemnation. Very, very different things. Two different things. But both describe offenses against Christ's body, the church. And the judge is still standing at the door. If you have questions, well, this is just a lot. It's like a shotgun blast all over the place. Topic is hard. I I want you to email me or come in and see me. There's probably some questions remaining to this, but it is important. A A lot of false doctrine has arisen out of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. As people have said, well, you can't say that what I'm doing isn't for real. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. No, no, what you're doing is not is not in harmony with the Scriptures. We have to call that out. Also, with uh, believers committing those sins to the body, God doesn't seem to take the life as quickly as He used to. He allows that discipline to work out through the church. It doesn't mean He takes it any less serious. These are very important things for us to consider Let's pray. Father, we pray that, uh, Lord, you will be ultimately glorified. And through our lives, as you told us to be holy, for you are holy, Lord, we pray that you're working through our lives to increasingly, day by day, conform us to the image of Christ. Father, you've promised us, if we belong to you, that is your will that will be increasingly conformed to Christ's image. 
And Lord, so that's what we'd ask on our behalf. As Christians here today, that we would be more ready to respond to your word, more ready to respond to one another, Lord, in time of need. Lord, that we would be, um, we'd be kind. That, Lord, as we know you love your church and you defend your church from all ungodliness, Lord, that we would be purified, that we would be holy, and that you would be glorified, Lord. Thank you for today. Thank you for the study uh, together, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.